Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 198, Mothers and Wives. So, I appreciate that you are looking balefully at your podcatcher and player, tapping your fingers lightly but firmly on your crossed arms and waiting to see how on earth I'm going to dig myself out of the mess that I've created. I've been forward to the Battle of Stoke in 1487, back to the history of Europe Back to a discussion about Henry's historiography. On the way, I've missed out really most of what happened immediately after Bosworth and all that. What a mess. But don't worry. All will be well with a contrite heart and a fair wind following free. Let's help by just recapping what we've done. We saw poor old Richard's body dumped into the ground in episode 194 and followed the narrative through to the arrival of the first pretender, Lambert Simnel, and his defeat at Stoke. In the last episode, 197, we then heard about how Henry Tudor manufactured a myth and started to establish his legitimacy after Bosworth. So just bear all of that in mind as we go. By the 7th of September, 1485, Henry VII arrived in London in triumph. It's a kind of honeymoon period, the hard work would start at the Parliament coming up in November. The first job was to get moved in and start the Minions working on preparing for said Parliament and also his coronation. And meanwhile on the agenda was some basking to be done, some celebrating, along maybe with hmm, a little light gloating for good measure. But the first thing though was to catch up with Mum, Margaret Beaufort of course. Margaret is now 42 years old and her son was 28. Most of their lives had been spent apart, and yet there is without doubt a very strong bond between mother and son. Despite the distance, maybe because of the shared fear and terror of the last 28 years and more of constant change, of secret communications, and a pretty constant expectation that one morning 
a messenger would arrive at Mrs. Stanley's door and tell her that her son had been assassinated or seized and thrown in the darkest, darkest dungeon. The news of the victory at Bosmouth must have been the most humongous relief. Seriously, can you imagine? So pretty much the first thing Henry did was to spend some QFT with his mum. QFT, incidentally, stands for Quality Family Time in the Crowther Family and is often accompanied by slightly cruel laughter or groans or complete apathy. The joys of family life. Henry and Margaret spent two weeks together at Margaret's Palace at Woking. Meanwhile, preparations were going on to move in. Margaret was being given a place on Cold Harbour Lane that would be her residence in London and bags of cash were devoted to moving her in. Henry had her declared a femme soul by Act of Parliament. No one knows what her hub, Thomas Stanley, thought of this, but it gave Margaret the level of financial and legal independence very few medieval women enjoyed, normally only well-off widows. The Act of Attainder visited on her by Richard III for her treachery was reversed, since now, of course, it was no longer treachery. It had, in fact, been loyalty to the rightful regime. Yesterday's terrorist was today's freedom fighter. It was payback time for all the years of pain. The ferocity of Margaret's defence of her son gives her a slightly scary quality. And I sense, rightly or wrongly, that she's not terribly popular to the modern-day reader, which I can understand, especially if you are a Yorkist or a fan of Richard III. And to add to her fanatical support for her son, she's almost equally fanatical in her religious practices, as her confessor John Fisher would relate. Remember that name, John Fisher, by the way. He will come into our story plenty. Fisher would be the man who delivered Henry's eulogy. And he related how Margaret was always expecting a disaster just round the corner, a glass half empty rather than a glass half full. Anyway, so that's kind of disconcerting and not always attractive. Added to that, there's the Elizabeth of York relationship about which we will speak later. But in summary, probably not your ideal mother-in-law. But there's an interesting little story that survives about a chap called Ralph Biggard. The story survives because it was presented to Queen Mary for her education in the value of loyalty. Ralph Biggard had been a servant of Anne Neville and Richard and had been fiercely loyal to his king. He'd fought and been wounded at Bosworth. After Bosworth, when most people shook their heads and said they'd always known Richard was a wrong'un and they was just following orders, gov, Ralph spoke up for Richard and defended his reputation. Margaret Beaufort took Ralph in and gave him the job of carver of her household. The story is often told as an example of the loyalty that could exist even in such dangerous times. But it's worth just sparing a thought for Margaret, taking in the defender of the man who tried to kill her son and recognising that such loyalty could be hers rather than having the guy attainted and generally given the chop. It seems that Henry would always rely on and trust his mother's judgment. There's very little indeed that survives of their correspondence, but what does suggests affection for each other. Famously, one of Margaret's letters addresses him as My own sweet and most dear king and all my worldly joy, my good and precious prince, king and only beloved son. Equally, there's a letter from Henry written in his own hand in 1501 that speaks of his affection and perpetual feelings of gratitude. And my dame, not only in this, 
but in all other things that I know should be to your honour and pleasure and weal of your soul, I shall be glad to please you as your heart can desire it. And I know well that I am bounden so to do as any creature living for the great and singular motherly affection that it hath pleased you at all times to bear me. Okay, not the most direct language. Mum ye great might have been a little bit more immediate, but buried in all that medieval circumlocution is evidence of closeness. It was a relationship that did not go unnoticed at the time. The Spanish visitor de Ayala, for example, wrote, He is much influenced by his mother and his followers in affairs of personal interest and in others. There's a bit more to that quote, which has a bit of a kicker, but we'll come to that later. For the moment, the message is Henry, Margaret, peas in pods, bosom pals, tighter than a gnat's ass. okay? And from a practical sense, you can see why Margaret was so important to Henry. Henry had been in exile since 1471 and the failure of Henry VI's re-adeption. And when he left, he'd been a 13-year-old boy. That left him at a severe disadvantage in the critical skills of networking and knowledge of the men and families that he must manage effectively to succeed as a king. Those weeks following Bosworth must have been essential time for Henry to use his mother's brain to understand the interrelationships between his great men. On the 30th of October, Henry was crowned at Westminster Abbey. Margaret's confessor, John Fisher, recalled that when the king, her son, was crowned in all that great triumph and glory, she wept marvellously. By the time Henry's first parliament came around, Henry had already given a couple of indications of how alien he was and how suspicious that made him, for suspicion was to become a theme of Henry's reign. Given that he'd lived in Brittany and France during many of his most formative years, Henry understood and valued the ways of the French. He therefore immediately organised for himself a bodyguard, just like the French king. Henry had installed himself in the Tower of London, and these fine fellows were called the Yeomen of the Guard. When Henry moved house, he left some of them as the Yeomen Warders of the Tower, and this group still survives to this day. Not the same people, you understand? That would be really remarkable. The institution. They are nicknamed Beefeaters. And you may have seen pictures of them in their Tudor red and gold uniforms. Why Beefeaters, I hear you ask? The truth is that no one has the foggiest. But of course, people claim to know. One confident assertion is that it comes from the French bouffetier, though no one knows what that means. Another, that they tasted Henry's beef for poison before he ate. Another, that because they were the king's personal guard, they were allowed to eat beef to make them big and strong. It's a theory. Anyway, Henry took immediate steps to secure any rivals. Now, of course, Henry was in the quite exceptionally handy position that there really were no rivals. But there was the son of Clarence, Edward, Duke of Warwick, just ten years old. He was taken from the glorious castle of Sheriff Hutton in the heartlands of what had been Neville Power and taken to the place where his father had been drowned in a vat of sweet wine, which was where he was to spend the rest of his life, as it happens. In the tower, I mean, not in a vat of sweet wine. Henry's Parliament, like almost all Parliaments of the Walls of the Roses, was compliant and obedient. Henry himself stood in front of the Parliament, I am assuming in the painted chamber, and he told them of his right to the throne by descent, and virum de judicium, right 
by God's judgment, as proven on the field of battle. Interesting, not by the right of his wife, that's for sure. The titulus regius of Richard III was ordered cancelled and destroyed toast, as were the various attainders by Richard as well. Because then, it was time for the winners to win. Jasper Tudor Now, not even the most ardent Yorkist could deny that Jasper Tudor had thoroughly earned his place in the sun. And he was given two presents. One was a wife, Catherine Woodville, the widow of Buckingham. Catherine, in turn, was restored to the wealth Richard had taken from her after Buckingham's rebellion. This move was designed to make Jasper a force in Wales on behalf of the king. It could be that this was not a happy personal decision. Jasper rather notably was not to mention his wife in his will, which is careless at very least. Catherine, meanwhile, was to celebrate Jasper's death when she was 40 by taking herself a 27-year-old toy boy which seems to have proven too much for her since she died a year later. Anyway, we weren't supposed to be listening to purient tittle-tattle, but speaking of politics and the fate of nations. So one gift was that of a wife, the other was to be made Duke of Bedford, restored as Earl of Pembroke and given a load of land. As I say, it's difficult to begrudge him. As it is another winner, John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, who got a suitable goodie bag. The de Veres, you know, are doing pretty well, descendant-wise. John was the 13th Earl of a title created for Edgar the Atheling back in the day. There was a lot of fecundity going on in the de Vere clan that folks like the Bahoons and Bigots and Mowbrays and Warrens could only sigh at from the pearly gates. Thomas and William Stanley were duly rewarded for their treachery and duplicity towards Richard, and as Phil Linnett would sing many centuries later, the Courtenays were back in town, in Devon. Dr John Morton would have to wait a while, but was to get his reward soon. In March 1486 he became Chancellor of England, duly installed at the heart of power. Before you could say Jack Robinson, the venerable 82-year-old Thomas Bourchier had croaked and John Morton was Archbishop of Canterbury. Now that is a chequered career of ups and downs for you, but all's well that ends well. John Morton was a player and would be a player in spades under Henry's reign. There will be an episode dedicated to Dr Morton in the members-only shedcasts very soon. There were more, of course, but it'll just become a procession of names, so let's not do that. But let us mention before we go Elizabeth Woodville, who was restored to all her lands. So let us instead turn to nastiness, revenge and despair, since that's always much more fun. Henry came up with the wizard Wheeze, which was to declare the first day of his reign as the 21st of August. I can see from the light of intelligence in your eyes that you understand the significance of this. 21st of August is the day before the Battle of Bosworth. A nice touch. So Henry could dump on all those folks who had fought on the side of Richard. He could convict all of them of treachery. Actually, if Henry is to be accorded the title of tyrant, maybe it starts here. That's not fair, is it? Not fair at all. It meant that anyone on the wrong side of Bosworth had better watch their backs. Even though Henry was not king on the 21st of August, they could not be committing treachery. There was a bit more business. The Commons duly granted tonnage and poundage for the king's life. You all know what tonnage and poundage means by now, I assume. Income from customs dues, basically. 
And then, there's an act of resumption. The king was to take back all the crown lands given away to people since the time of Henry VI in 1455, mind you, 30 years ago, which meant Henry was to have a vast patrimony. In this act, though, reservations were made for the grand matriarch of the defeatist Yorkist clan, Cecily Neville. Cecily, now 70, had suffered enough excitement for one life and now very much withdrew for the last ten years of her life into the lay religious rule, a kind of nun's life without actually being in a nunnery. However, there was still life in the old dog. She sent Henry VII a gift, a most generous gift of a magnificent tapestry. It showed a wheel of fortune. A nice touch. Don't let your backside sit too comfortably on that throne, Henry Tudor. You have no idea what might be coming next. Now, before they went, there was one promise Henry wanted from his parliamentary members. We are probably going to mention the words livery and maintenance more than is comfortable over the next few episodes. It's a duo I remember writing in my school exercise book all 40 years ago. I think you know what these mean too, but again, let's just make sure. Livery meant that a lord took out a contract, an indenture, with a man who was then at his beck and call, should the need arise. It's called livery because you wore robes with his colours when you worked for him and wore his badge, i.e. you wore his livery. Maintenance meant that the lord would support the wearers of his badge and robes, come what may, and often against the law of the land. So, one of you out there, Mary, let me say that you give me your badge, a small yellow pig. On Saturday night at your local, someone steals your bag of pork scratchings. Irritably, you declare, will nobody rid me of this turbulent knicker of pork scratchings? Later that night, I nip along, take revenge, and the knicker will nick no more. But when the law comes to visit the king's justice on me, you bribe the jurors and the judge, and I get off scot-free. For a king, there is good and bad, actually, in all of this. So it's a problem as both a challenge to the throne and royal power if there are too many massive magnates with these potentially vast retinues they can call on. More, it's a problem for law and order if all these people can avoid the rather skinny arm of the medieval law. On the other hand, English kings have effectively no standing army. And if you need an army quickly, it's actually a pretty handy system to be able to call on magnates with a group of men ready to go. So kings, since time immemorial, had been slightly equivocal about it all, but had constantly tried to limit and control it. Richard II, Edward IV, both had tried to legislate on the topic, and Henry now did the same. The aim was to outlaw it all, except immediate household and councillors. So that's what the law said. No one anymore is allowed to have people signed up to their livery and to maintain them except immediate household and councillors. Quite radical. The question is how seriously Henry really tried to enforce these laws, but publicly, he was now against it. And at Parliament, everyone was made to swear an oath. Shall we all swear a medieval oath? Here goes then. Imagine yourself standing in the painted chamber with a bunch of smartly dressed knights, bishops, great men, and so on, and repeat after me. I swear that I from henceforth shall not receive aid, nay comfort, any person openly cursed murderer, felon, or outlawed man of felony, nor retain any man by indenture or oath, nor give livery, sign, or token, nor any maintenance, embracery, riots, or unlawful assembly make, upon my honour and worship, 
so help me and his saints. Actually, it's rather longer than that, but I thought you might get bored. But you can see livery, maintenance, indenture, right in the middle of that oath. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Parliament also made a request to Henry that he should marry Elizabeth of York as he had sworn in Wren Cathedral. And in fact, one of the other orders Henry sent immediately after Bosworth was to fetch Elizabeth of York down from Sheriff Sutton too. Now, some historians have made a lot of the fact that it took Henry a few months to get married to Elizabeth of York. Richard lay dead on the 22nd of August, 1485. The marriage didn't take place until the 18th of January, 1486. Hmm... I can see the point. Some have said that Henry was super keen to make the point. Look, I'm king because of me, not because of Elizabeth. And while we're at it, forget any idea you might have or I might have given that we'll be joint rulers, we'll be having none of that. And that would indeed sound like Henry. On the other hand, organising a marriage is not the job of a moment, something of which I have personal experience. And not only were the shoes to buy, Henry had to get papal dispensation since they were more closely related than the slightly daft rules the church permitted. I don't know, I'm 50-50 on it. As I said before, more relevant to me is that Elizabeth wasn't crowned until November 1487, and that looks very much like making a point. Nonetheless, I imagine Henry hated being told by Parliament to get on with it. He'd just been through all this rigmarole of asserting his right and making quite clear York was nowhere. And in return, Parliament said, OK, so you'll need to get hitched with York then, please. But the marriage went ahead in January 1486 and apparently everyone was jolly pleased. I have mentioned Francis Bacon, the 17th century historian, and his opinions will no doubt come up again, since he tends to colour everything we think about Henry VII. So, when he wrote... It was celebrated with greater triumph and demonstrations, especially on the people's part, of joy and gladness than the days either of his own entry or coronation, which the king rather noted than liked. It's difficult to be clear whether he speaks with authority or not. But it seems not unlikely. The Tudor poet of the time, Bernard André, certainly bigged up the celebrations that took place by Henry's subject. There's a subtext here, both that there was a lot of residual loyalty to York, that Henry still had a lot to prove, and hate it or loathe it, as he might, Elizabeth and her title of York meant a lot to his subjects. And he is likely to have been unenthusiastic about any impression of dependency, who wouldn't. So, there's some support for the idea that there's a bit of resentment lying around in the royal household, a potential for a bit of an atmosphere. Now, it has to be said that there were a lot of queens lying about the place. I mean, I know this is perfectly normal. People do, after all, have mothers-in-law. But somehow, it seems more of an issue here. Maybe because these women, Margaret Beaufort, Elizabeth Woodville, Elizabeth of York, have all had such a central political role to play in the drama of the last few years. 
So, I figure to spend the rest of today talking about this relationship. Elizabeth Woodville is probably dealt with most quickly, and firstly, I have to own up to a degree of confusion and lack of clarity. I've never really been able to take a very clear line on Elizabeth and her character. Many authors have treated her essentially as a deeply ambitious harpy, and there's both evidence to be advanced to support the case, and of course, it's a great character to have in the drama that is English history. So, the likes of Paul Kendall and Thomas Penn thoroughly enjoy, I suspect, using phrases like cold, lynx-eyed beauty, and shuddering with horror at her weakness and gross moral turpitude in delivering up her son to Richard or signing up to Richard's cause to escape the confines of sanctuary. All the while, the chaos and treachery of the menfolk rages about them. Others have sought to explain and justify, though honestly I don't think I've ever read a genuinely positive narrative about her. It's tricky. I instinctively distrust any message which speaks to a character without worth and driven by purely greed and ambition. And Elizabeth had to deal with the most remarkable and extraordinary situations, so who am I to judge? Where I come down is rather feeble. I have little doubt Elizabeth was a player in politics and was far from being an innocent bystander. Equally, I think she's often judged more harshly and against a different standard than many of her male contemporaries. Anyway, for Elizabeth, there is one more act to be played out. Elizabeth had her lands fully restored in the 1485 Parliament and it looked for all the world as though she was very much in favour and that her deal with Margaret Beaufort was the thing everyone remembered. Elizabeth then started to think about where she'd like to hang out and investigated a new house in London. She was godmother to Henry and Elizabeth's first-born son, Arthur, in 1486. Everything was good. And then, in 1487, at the time of Lambert Simnel's rebellion, suddenly she was shut down. Her money was taken away, sent to spend the rest of her life at Bermondsey Abbey in London, a house well used to receiving royalty. She's given an annual income of 400 marks, which is, relatively speaking, pretty mean. So, what was going on? There are four broad theories. One, that there were just too many queens lying around, kings wouldn't provide for so many, and that was that. Basically nothing personal, just time for you to bow out, and it certainly wasn't going to be the king's mother who went. Difficult to get enthusiastic about this theory. Why leave it to 1487? Second, that Elizabeth Woodville had been naughty again and conspired with Lincoln and Simnel and been punished. I refuse to believe this. Elizabeth would have had to have been the worst kind of idiot to effectively conspire against her own daughter. Third, that it was all Elizabeth's idea. While her piety doesn't hit you in the eye, there's no doubt she was at least conventionally pious, and it never does to underestimate the potential for medieval folks to take themselves off to contemplate God and the afterlife. Difficult to get keen about this one too, though. It's all rather sudden and she'd been negotiating for a new grand house in London when it happened. Fourth, and my personal favourite, is that it's a combination of many of these. There's a call on the public purse. Elizabeth may well have supported the departure, or at least not been opposed to going into Bermondsey Abbey. But Henry and Margaret, and particularly Margaret, would have been very pleased to see the back of her. Either way, Elizabeth Woodville is now rarely seen, and no longer a political figure for sure. She tips up at a few formal occasions and at her daughter's confinement, but in 1492 she finally gives up the ghosts at Bermondsey, and since she has no possessions, 
bequeaths her blessings to her daughter in her will, and was then buried next to Edward IV at Windsor according to her wishes. And so to the immortal triangle of wife, husband and mother-in-law. It's an intrinsically delicate situation, is it not? We have a rather strong personal situation between husband and mother forged in the fire of 15 years of struggle, pain and uncertainty. We have a husband and wife who don't know each other and where there's an uneasy feeling of neediness on the part of Henry's political situation that would probably have driven Henry up the wall. Both of these play to Elizabeth of York being firmly pushed as far back into the background as a jealous and powerful mother-in-law could wish for. On the other hand, there is a formal role of the Queen that simply can't be denied. Elizabeth cannot simply be ignored. She has a formal precedence over her mother-in-law that equally cannot be ignored either. What we are usually left with is the image of an Elizabeth with a rather placid, happy nature, content to take a back seat and produce the babies with husband and mother running the joint. So let's have a look at that, shall we? Let me start with the visitor's view from later in the reign in 1498. This is from de Ayala again. His crown is nevertheless undisputed and his government strong in all aspects. He is disliked, but the queen is beloved because she is powerless. And then again. He is much influenced by his mother and his followers in affairs of personal interest and in others. The queen, as is generally the case, does not like it. Here then is the basis of a slightly different story, of a queen forcibly pushed into the background and not liking it one little bit. A Spanish representative wrote to Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain, The queen is a very noble woman and much beloved. She is kept in subjection by the mother of the king. It would be a good thing to write often to her and show her a little love. Francis Bacon's view once again fueled the fire. He talked about the Queen's, quote, depressed status. He wrote that the King's aversion towards the House of York was so predominant in him as it found place not only in his wars and councils, but in his chamber and bed. He also wrote that Henry was, quote, nothing uxorious nor scarce indulgent, though, quote, companionable and respectful and without jealousy. So this is a rather different story to that happy one. It's a story of a wife pushed to the background by force, a queen mother with too much influence, and the queen therefore treated with distant politeness and little more by her husband. Well, back to 1486 to run through some events. Almost before the wedding feast was cleared away, Elizabeth was pregnant to everyone's excitement. Safely before the birth, Elizabeth went to stay in Winchester and at her side were her mother and Margaret. The birth of a prince was to some degree at least a public event. Not that everyone would buy tickets to be there, you understand, but because everyone would be waiting for the result. Would it be a prince and heir or would it be yawn a daughter? Sorry, just the way it was. So, Henry wanted to make a statement with the birth. If it was indeed a boy, he would be born in Winchester, the home of King Arthur's round table. Henry himself was the proud bearer of Cadwallader's red dragon, inheritor of the ancient British tradition of King Arthur. When the young prince was born in September 1486, 
he would be called Arthur to carry on that glorious tradition and inheritance to the greater glory of the Tudor house. It is then notable that it is Margaret, rather than Elizabeth Woodville, that makes all the arrangements for the christening of little Arthur, and indeed for the churching of the Queen thereafter. The fine detail suggests an obsessiveness and desire for control that is just a tiny bit intimidating. In January 1487, Henry finally did the decent thing and the Queen's coronation went ahead. Again, Margaret, for most of the time, is in close attendance as the preparations were made. At the coronation itself, Elizabeth's mother and relatives were there in due proportion. And at the banquet, her mother was at her feet, as was the tradition. Margaret Beaufort, however, was behind a screen with the king. There was no way she was going to be sitting at anybody's feet. From there on in, a large part of Elizabeth's life, unsurprisingly, was spent in ceremonial or childbirth. She travelled around with Henry more than was perhaps standard, which may be a sign of a happy relationship, and there is a stream of presents from king to wife. So that all looks good. On the other hand, the settlement for the Queen in terms of lands and income was rather short of the standard. It was £1,900 a year, which really wasn't adequate. And what that means was effectively Elizabeth was dependent on those handouts and presents from the king to get by. And on those travels, and indeed when they're stationary, Margaret's presence is almost continual. And the impression is that Elizabeth found herself as part of a threesome rather than a partnership with her husband. I have to say that the image of a son and a mother who were very close of a control-loving and domineering mother determined to play a part in every aspect of her son's life and that of his family is compelling. I find it impossible to believe in the image of Elizabeth as simply a doormat, totally content with all of this. And it seems much easier to believe the Spanish observer that Elizabeth found all of this difficult to deal with. There are glimpses of self-assertion in Elizabeth. The negotiation and correspondence with the Spanish over the betrothal of Arthur to Catherine of Aragon gave her an opportunity to take an interest and active part. She was able to assert herself in decisions about the estate and care of her children. But these opportunities are far and few between. Actually, while I don't want to be all emotional, this image of the Yorkist queen and heir diminished and a husband unable or unwilling to protect his wife against his mother is a most unattractive aspect of Henry for me. Historians have tried to be level and judicious about it, but really the evidence such as we have it is for a most uncomfortable emotional situation for Elizabeth of York. There would have been compensations. No one ever suggests anywhere that she was ever deprived of the proper estate due to a queen. Indeed, Henry was very aware of the need for a monarch to display the wealth and power of his household, and Elizabeth's station was part of that. There is every indication that Elizabeth was well able to play her formal role with talent. Plus, there are just some things Henry and Margaret could not get round, because tradition accorded precedence to the wife rather than the wife's mother, and to the queen rather than the queen's mother since in the latter case, actually, the Queen Mother had no formal role. So Elizabeth, from time to time, would have been able to enjoy little victories. So let me take you to the Twelfth Night Royal Christmas celebrations in 1487 at Greenwich. At the banquet, 
the king and queen wore their crowns. The best Margaret could have was a quote rich coronel. Margaret did her level best to make up for it. She was dressed quote in like mantle and surcoat as the queen. But in this particular event, the battle was beyond Margaret. Margaret had to walk slightly behind and beside the queen's train, which must have hurt. The king's marshal ended affairs with quote full estate to the king and queen and only quote half estate to the queen mother. The situation would have recurred constantly. So Monday money for example was carried out by Elizabeth as queen, by Margaret only as princess dowager. At the Easter service, king and queen kissed the pax board. Queen mother did not. It is without doubt a little small-minded of me and maybe Elizabeth of York was a better and bigger person than I, but I hope these small victories made up for some of the pain I suspect Margaret inflicted on her daughter-in-law. Okey dokey, that brings us to the end of the episode. Next week, it will be back to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast and the arrival of the great heathen army. While in two weeks' time, we'll hear about Henry's new government and the key personalities within it. Until then, gentle listeners, fare thee well. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>